Father God, uh, we want our eyes and our ears and our hearts to be fixed and tuned in to what you have for us this morning. Help us to see, Father, uh, what it is that you want us to see. Uh, Father, we are looking not to what is seen, but to what is unseen, not to what is temporary, but what is, to, what is eternal this morning. And we realize that we have an enemy who uh, would love nothing more than for us to be distracted, for us not to hear clearly from you, for us to be confused. But you are not a God of confusion. You are a God who brings hope and peace. And so I pray this morning, Father, that you would break through the fog, break through the distractions, and speak clearly to our hearts this morning. Our eyes are fixed on you, and it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, today uh, we are starting a brand new series, and we're calling it Bad Coffee Mugs. And uh, that may seem like a a funny phrase, a funny title, but haven't we all heard uh, some phrases that sounded good? They sounded like they ought to be right. Things like, uh, God helps those who help themselves. How many of you heard that phrase before? Yeah, and it seems good. That seems right. You know, we should help ourselves, and then God's going to help us out. Who can argue with that kind of thinking? Or how about this one? Cleanliness is next to godliness. We've all heard that one, right? And as the father of a six-year-old boy, I can tell you that in our house, we are far from godliness if that is true. That kid is dirty all the time. Maybe you've seen these phrases on a bumper sticker or maybe on a t-shirt or maybe even on the mug that you drank your coffee from this morning, something like this. But we need to be careful with the words that we take in and with the words that we believe because these things have the ability to shape the way that we think. They shape the way that we view God, they can shape the way that we view the people around us, and they shape the way that we look at the world. So here's the thing, as disciples of Jesus, we have to look to Scripture to know and to allow its truth to form and shape our lives. We have to look to Scripture for truth, not the little sayings that we might pick up here and there, but Scripture, God's Word. And if you wonder why we hold God's Word so high around here, I want to encourage you to go back to our podcast and listen through to the series we just wrapped up a couple of weeks ago. It's called Eat the Scroll. And that series was all about uh, why we hold God's Word high and how do you study it and how do you approach it. But this morning, we're going to kick off with this one. It's the mug I have up here with me, and it says, God wants me to be happy. And that seems right, doesn't it? We talk a lot about God's love for us. We talk about the fact that he cares about us. Uh, and, and so why wouldn't he want us to be happy? If he loves us, why wouldn't he want that for us? And I have to be honest, I don't completely disagree with this statement. But what I think we need to consider is what is often behind a thought like God wants me to be happy. And it's, it's the idea that I know best what it is that would make me happy. It's the thought that I get to define for myself what happiness is, and then I can pursue whatever that is and just assume that God is going to bless that pursuit because he wants me to be happy. But maybe to put this into perspective a little bit, I I could share a, a story I heard on the radio a couple of weeks ago, and it was a father talking about an experience that he had with his toddler aged son. And they were in the backyard enjoying a sunny day, and the father got distracted for just a second just a second, and the toddler identified a slug 
sliming its way across the sidewalk. And the toddler did what all toddlers do. They put things in their mouth, don't they? Toddlers put stuff in their mouth all the time. And so the kid did. He reached down, he grabbed the slug, and he popped it into his mouth like it was a chicken nugget. And uh, the father turned around and he saw what was going on just as the hand was going to the mouth and as the slug was going in. And uh, if you're a father of small children, you know the, the sweep with the finger technique and you get in there and get it out. And that's exactly what the father did. He reached in there and he popped the slug out of his son's mouth. But, but here's the thing. When he did that, the toddler started protesting. I mean, he wanted that slug. That slug was delicious to him. And he was convinced that that slug was going to make him happy. And the father denied him the joy of sucking on that slug. But the father knew better, didn't he? And uh, you and I know that, that sucking on slugs doesn't actually lead to happiness. And it's easy to see with an example like that why the father would say no. That's gross, right? We would all say no. But what about when our heavenly father says no to something that's not gross to us? What about when it's something that you really want and you don't get it? Or the other side of that is what, what about when it's something that you don't want and you find yourself in the middle of that difficult situation. What do you do uh, when, when trouble comes? If your theology is, God just wants me to be happy, what do you do when suffering comes into your life? Because Jesus made it very clear that suffering will come. We've highlighted this before. Jesus says in John 16 that in this world, you will have trouble. You're going to have trouble. And when that trouble comes, you better have a bigger context for your life then God wants me to be happy. Because when trouble comes, you're going to have some questions. And some of you are asking those questions this morning. Why? Why God? Why now? Why this? Why me? I thought you loved me. I thought you wanted me to be happy. And this is not leading toward that. And so this morning, I want to give you a context for suffering that is greater than God just wants me to be happy. And we all experience suffering in our lives. And when that happens, isn't it true that we have a way of turning our attention toward God? Whether, whatever you believe about God, it seems that suffering and trouble have this unique way of turning our attention heavenward. But the context through which you view your pain and suffering will determine, you know, that God-focused attention, whether or not that attention is positive and hope-filled or negative and hopeless. So let's start with this. C.S. Lewis uh, said this. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And all of us, through different expressions of pain and suffering, either have experienced or will experience the shout of God. And maybe for you, it's been the loss of a job and the bills keep on coming and there is no money to pay them. And so now what? Maybe it's played out for you and seeing your kids grow up and go a different direction than you trained them to go. And, and now what? Maybe you've experienced an illness or an injury that's taken away some freedoms that you used to enjoy, and it's really taken the joy out of life. Or maybe you've had to walk through the loss of someone that you loved dearly, 
or maybe the wreckage of a broken relationship and all of the realities that come with that kind of a situation. Pain and suffering, they come in a lot of different forms, but with it almost always comes the question, why? Why? Because we have this natural desire to make some sense out of pain. If there's a bigger purpose, if somehow this is leading towards something good, then maybe, maybe I can find some way to endure it. And so we ask the question, why? Now, let me illustrate what I mean by that. To some extent, you and I have all experienced what I'll call elected pain, Okay, an elected pain is pain that we choose because on the other side of it, there's some greater good that we desire. And so we push through the pain to get to uh, the elected good. How many of you here this morning have a tattoo? Raise your hand high if you've got a tattoo. Oh my goodness. Uh, some of you aren't raising your hand right now and you're lying. And, uh, <laughs> and I don't want to know where it is and I don't want to know the crazy story that goes with it, but you've got one. Most people don't know this, uh, but Paul Muma's back is covered with a tattoo of an eagle clutching a shotgun. It's beautiful, okay? Uh, but the reality is that those tattoos, they come with pain. There's some pain associated in having ink injected into your skin, isn't there? But we push through that pain. We know it's going to hurt, but, but push through that pain and you endure it for the end result of giving your mom the greatest Mother's Day gift of all time. I mean, what mom doesn't love to hear that you got a tattoo? How many of you here this morning have ever given blood? You got any blood givers? Yeah, Beth and I have given blood together. And here's a fun fact about my wife. Uh, she passes out every single time she gives blood. And she tells them every time. I'm going to pass out. And every time they say, no, honey, you're going to be fine. We're going to take care of you. And then in 10 minutes, like clockwork, she is gone. She's out. And there's a certain amount of discomfort and pain that comes with giving blood. I don't like the way that needle feels going into my arm. I don't like the lightheaded feeling that I get after I give blood. But I know that there's a greater good on the other side of that pain. And so I push through and I endure. There's a bigger context for the pain. One more. How many of you here today were born? How many of you are born of a woman? Some of you are not raising your hand, and I would love to hear more about that. Uh, but, but the reality is childbirth isn't painless, is it? There's a, there's a great amount of pain that goes with it. We know this, and yet people continue to have babies because apparently some women believe that the pain of childbirth is worth the end result of having children. And so to a certain extent, we've all experienced elected pain. We've said, you know what, the good at the end of this pain, it, it makes sense to me, it makes it all worth it, and I can endure because the context helps me to push through that pain. So it shouldn't be a surprise to us that when trouble and suffering comes that we neither expected nor elected in our lives, when the, the legs get kicked out from under us, that we ask the question, why? We've got to find some context, some greater purpose for the pain that we're experiencing in this life. Because if there is some greater context, then maybe we can push through and maybe we can make sense of it and maybe we can endure. And you know what? We see the exact same response in Jesus as he's hanging on the cross. Jesus, who knew before the creation of the world that he would die for the sins of humanity. Jesus, who in the Gospels predicted his own death a number of different times when he is hanging on the cross. He says, my God, my God, why? 
Why? Why have you forsaken me? And he knew why. But in his humanity, in the middle of unspeakable pain and suffering, he cried out to his father and he asked, why? He said, I need some context because right now all I'm experiencing is pain and suffering and abandonment. And some of you here this morning are in that exact place and you're desperate for someone to connect the dots and to make sense of it for you. But the problem is this, and and here's where the bad coffee mug comes in. The problem is when we look heavenward and we ask the, the question, God, why? But then we move our eyes to right here, just to our, to our own small lives. And we try to, to put the dots together. And we begin searching ourselves for the answer. And we ask questions like, what could I have done differently? Where, where did I go wrong? Was this my fault? What could I you know, have done better? Should I have done this or that? Should I have been a better parent or a better spouse or a better friend? And the temptation will always be there to view life's pain and suffering only within the context of our own small lives. But folks, I need you to know this morning, and if you hear nothing else I say today, hear this. This right here, this is not a biblical reality. God's greatest desire is not that you would be made happy. God's greatest desire is that we would be faithful and obedient to him in the midst of trouble, in the midst of pain, that we would trust him and that we would know that he uses everything for our good, even if it doesn't make us feel happy in the moment. And we're gonna see today that there is a much greater context for our pain and our suffering than just this. And it's found in Romans chapter eight. I wanna invite you to turn there with me this morning. If you didn't bring a Bible, there are some under the seats around you and this is on page 787 of those Bibles. But as you turn there, I want you to know two things about this passage before we read it. The first is this. The answer that we will see today in Romans chapter 8, it is not a quick fix to solve all of your problems, okay? It's not. It's not going to make any of the pain go away. And you say, well, then what good is it? Well, it's like the elected pain that we talked about earlier, okay? Knowing it, going into it doesn't take the pain away, but it gives you a bigger context that helps you to endure the pain that we all experience. And the second thing that you need to know is this. As we look at Romans chapter eight this morning, these promises and these truths were written to Christians. Okay, these things apply to followers of Jesus. And if you are not a follower of Jesus, I want you to know that I am so glad you are here this morning. You are so very welcome here. I want you to keep coming back. I want you to keep studying and keep learning about Jesus. But I also want you to understand that the context I'm going to share this morning only makes sense through the lens of a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I need to be very honest with you. I've walked through pain and suffering with enough people who were not followers of Jesus to to know that I have absolutely no idea how you do that. I have absolutely no idea how you navigate the suffering of life without the knowledge of a God who loves and cares for you. And, uh, and if you're here this morning and you're trying to make it on your own, whatever that means, it's my prayer that as we look at these verses, that your heart would be opened to the God who loves you and the God who cares about you. And the very God who you may be angry at this morning or running away from because of whatever has happened in your life, 
He is the very same God who has given us the context for all of life's pain and suffering. And it's a context that helps us endure. He has connected three big dots for us in Romans chapter 8 that have eternal significance. And I'm going to tell you what they are right now so that you can see them and look for them in the text as we read. Here they are. If you want to write them down on your notes page, it's these three things. It's in the beginning, in the meantime, and in the end. And if you will view your pain through the the lens of a relationship with Jesus and within the context that we're going to see in Romans chapter 8, I believe that there is hope and there is purpose and there is strength to endure. In the beginning, in the meantime, and in the end. Let's read it together, starting in verse 18. It says this. It says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And notice right from the get-go in this very first verse, Paul begins pulling us out of the present, out of our current troubles, and he turns our focus to in the end. He says, I know there's suffering now. I know there's pain right now. I see it. I'm experiencing it too. He's not denying that there's pain and suffering, but he says this present suffering, whatever it is that you might be going through, it's not even worth comparing with what's to come. And then he says in verse 19, for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. And again, he's pointing towards something in the future, isn't he? He he says that there's something that we're waiting for, and we're waiting with eager expectation that the children of God will be revealed. Now, in verse 20, Paul's going to take us all the way back to the beginning, and he's going to begin filling in the blanks for us. Here's what he says. Verse 20, he says, For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. Now, what's he talking about? Well, here's the first big dot of the bigger context. In the beginning, in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, we can read the creation account and we can read of God's interaction with man and with creation. And everything was as it was meant to be in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. But then we move one more chapter ahead to Genesis chapter 3, and everything goes south. We read that sin entered the world. And when sin entered, death followed, and death reigned. And we can read in Genesis chapter 3, God's verdict on sin and God's verdict on creation. It's a list of curses that were put on creation because of sin. And the creation, Paul says in Romans, has been subjected to frustration ever since sin entered the picture. That word frustration, it can also mean depravity or it can mean uh, perversion. It means that things are not the way that God intended them to be. They were broken. They were messed up when sin entered into the world. But look at the end of verse 20. And into verse 21, it says, it says, these things were subjected to frustration in hope that the creation itself would be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. This verse says that original sin, it put us in bondage to decay. Do you know why your back hurts when you get out of bed in the morning? 
You say, yeah, it's because I got a crummy mattress. Well, no, I mean, you might have a crummy mattress, but your back hurts because you are in bondage to decay. Do you know why I have to put these little lenses in my eyes before I can see anything? Some of you are wearing apparatuses on your face to even be able to read and follow along this morning. You say, it's just because I have bad eyesight. No, it's because your body is in bondage to decay. You are decaying. I am decaying. The whole world is decaying. We look at this life and we say, God, why did this happen? Why did that happen? Well, the answer is it's because we're in bondage to decay. You and I are decaying. The whole world is decaying because in the beginning, sin entered the world. And ever since sin entered, death followed and death reigned, and now everything is in bondage to decay. Everything. Things are not the way that they were meant to be. And look at, at Romans eight twenty two. he goes on to say, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Now, Paul starts bringing us from in the beginning to in the meantime. What does this mean for right now? He says the whole creation is groaning. Listen, it's not just that something in your world broke. The whole world is broken. It's not just that something in your marriage broke. The whole world is broken. It's not just something in your kids that broke. The whole world is broken. And the pain and suffering that you and I experience in life is just one example of a much bigger thing that's going on. Sin entered the world. And when sin entered, death reigned and decay began and the world has been groaning ever since. And you may be thinking, well, I, I believe that, but, uh, but I'm a follower of Jesus. I love God. I'm living as good as I can. You know, I've accepted Christ, so I'm not a part of that anymore. Well, look at verse 23. Paul says, not only so, so not only is creation groaning, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Paul says, even those of us who have been given the Spirit of God, and by the way, who is that? Who is that? He's talking about Christians. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, he has put his spirit in you. You have the first fruit of the spirit. And Paul says, even we, even we who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly, being a person who God loves and who God cares deeply for, does not exempt you from the trouble and the suffering and the inward groaning that this world and our bondage to decay produce. Because in the beginning, sin entered and death reigned. And in the meantime, you will feel the decay, the effects of decay in your body. But there's hope. Look at verse 24. He says, for in this hope we were saved. Now, what hope? What's he talking about? Well, he's pointing back to verse 23. It's the hope of our future adoption. It's the hope of the future redemption of our bodies. Because in the beginning, sin entered and death reigned. And in the meantime, we live in a world that is decaying. But in the end, these bodies will be redeemed. They will be made new. They will be made perfect. And our adoption will be made complete. That's the hope that we were saved to. He says, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. 
Who hopes for what they already have? So it hasn't happened yet. This is in the future. This is in the end, but it's coming. Verse 25 says, but if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. We wait for it patiently. That means that our take on all of this as Christians, all of this as we approach pain and as we approach suffering is that we don't put our focus on in the beginning when sin entered and when death reigned. We don't get consumed by in the meantime where we experience the decay of this life. No, but we face forward to the end when the redemption of our bodies will be made true, made whole, made perfect, and when our adoption as sons and daughters of God will be fulfilled. And we don't lose hope because now we understand why these things are happening. It doesn't take away the pain, but it gives us a context that we can work from. That when sin entered the picture, it set me up to suffer. It set you up to suffer. It set us up to struggle. And we understand that this world is not how it was meant to be. It's broken. And that means that I have to look to the future. I have to look to the time where my hope lies, where my salvation is completed. But in the meantime, I also have the Spirit of God living inside of me, giving me hope, even as I experience the decay of this world. And this is the great part. In Romans 8, 26, Paul says this. He says, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't even know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. I know that this says wordless groans. The NIV used to read groans that words cannot express. And I think that's a better translation. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Do you know what it means that the Spirit of God intercedes for you? It literally means that the Spirit of God is praying to the Father God on your behalf. He is praying for you. Listen, God understands that sometimes this life is so difficult and the pain that we experience is so extreme that there are no words to even express how we feel. And in those moments, the Spirit Spirit of God steps in and he intercedes for you with groans that words cannot express. Because in the beginning, sin entered and death reigned. But in the meantime, if you've given your life to Christ, God is in you and his spirit is praying on your behalf when you don't have the words to pray. How amazing is that? How incredible of a gift is that, that God would understand the depth of our pain, that he would understand that there are moments when we don't even have words to say. And in those moment, moments, he's given us his spirit to pray for us, even when we can't. Now, what's about to come from verse 28 on, Paul's about to turn a corner here, and he's about to move our focus from in the meantime to in the end. And this is probably the most popular passage in Romans chapter 8. Verse 28 says this. It says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Paul says, you know what? I've walked with the Lord long enough to know 
that in all things, he works for our good. And let's remember, I, I brought this up a couple of weeks ago, but this Paul who is writing here, this is the same Paul who endured incredible hardship. He had been beaten multiple times. He had been taken as a prisoner and lived in a dungeon. He had been put on a slave ship. That was, if that wasn't bad enough, the slave ship came into a storm and it, it, he got shipwrecked and he floated in the open sea. And then he, he found himself on, a, on an island and he got bit by a venomous snake and thing after thing after thing leading all the way up to Paul's martyrdom. Paul didn't have an easy life. And yet he says, you know what? In all things, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. And it may not seem like it right now. It may not feel like it right now, but you can know that in all things, God works for your good. If you are a person who loves God, if you're a person who loves God, you were born into a broken world and there are going to be struggles. But in your weakness, you can know that God is living in you. He's given your spirit, your, you his spirit who is praying for you and he is working for your good. And he has given you a context that will help you endure. The knowledge that this is headed towards something better than you can imagine. Now, I want to jump down to verse 31. It says, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? But if some of you were being honest this morning, you would have to admit that you don't believe that God is for you. In fact, it feels very much like God is against you. And you look at all of the pain and all of the suffering that you've endured, and you're asking the question, if God loves me, then why would he have let this happen? If God loves me, then why didn't he just end all of my pain and all of my suffering? Doesn't he even care? Well, verse 32 is the real proof of this entire text. And if you've ever questioned God's love for you in the midst of pain, verse 32 is given to answer the question once and for all, God, do you love me? To answer the question once and for all, do you understand my pain? Look at what it says, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? He who did not spare his own son. It was his one and only son, Jesus Christ, who stepped out of heaven, lived as a man, and then was murdered on a cross, though he had done nothing wrong. And in doing that, he took on the sin of the world. In fact, scripture tells us that he actually became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. And verse 32 says, says he did it for us. He did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us. Does God know what, it, what it's like to suffer? Does God know what it's like to lose everything? Can God relate to us in our pain? How could he not? He gave up his son. He didn't spare his own son for us. He didn't spare his own son for you. Does he love you? More than you can imagine. More than you can imagine. And I know it's so easy to lose sight of that. I know that the decay around us is so distracting and sometimes absolutely debilitating. And we feel like we can't even get up and operate in our days. And sometimes we just need a reminder. We need a reminder that this is leading towards something good, that something better is coming. 
Well, let me just tell you, the Bible says that no eye has seen and no ear has heard and no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. And he will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more tears, no more pain. It's coming, but that's in the end. And listen, we're, we're, gonna, we're gonna experience the decay of life in the meantime. We're gonna experience suffering. We're gonna experience trouble, but God is with you. If you are a follower of Jesus, his spirit is in you. He is praying for you and he is working all things for the good of those who love him. Do you love him? That's the question this morning. Do you love him? Have you given your life to Jesus? If not, I don't want you to go one more day without this hope. I don't want you to go one more day resisting God's love. Quit it. Let him give you a reason to boldly face forward to the end when we will experience the redemption of our bodies and our adoption as his sons and daughters. You can do that today and you can have a reason to boldly face forward. And as we saw before the message, we're gonna have a baptism celebration less than a month from now, first Sunday in May. And if you take that step and you accept Christ as your savior, man, I'd love to baptize you on that day and to see you take a bold stand before this church and to say, uh, my life is hidden in Christ now and I have a reason to face forward and I have a hope to endure everything that life can throw my way. That hope can be yours today. But there are some of you here this morning who have already accepted Christ and you just need a reminder. And so I want to pray over you today. I I want to invite you to, to close your eyes and to bow your heads. And I want to read the rest of this passage over you. With your eyes closed and your heads bowed, I want you to listen to this truth. Paul says, in all these things, in all of these things that we endure, in all of the trouble, in all of the suffering, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the hope that we've been offered, not temporary happiness, but eternal joy. And we face forward to the day when that joy will be ours completely. Father, help us in that. Father, without a doubt, there are brothers and sisters in this room today who are experiencing deep pain, deep loss, deep suffering, and they've asked the question, God, why? And Father, I pray this morning that that you have spoken clearly to them through your word. Not that this takes away any of that reality, not that it takes away any of that pain, but that it gives us a greater context for our pain than just that you might want us to have temporary happiness. No, you want us to have lasting, eternal joy. You want to find us obedient and faithful in the midst of life's trouble, in the midst of life's suffering. And Father, we want that to be true of us. So help us to fix our eyes on the end goal. Help us to fix our eyes on Christ. Help us to fix our eyes, Father, not on what is seen, but what is unseen, not on what is temporary, but what is eternal. Father, give us a hope in the midst of life's pain, in the midst of life's suffering, that in the end, the redemption of our bodies is coming, that our adoption as your sons and daughters will be completed. 
and we will have joy for all of eternity with you. Father, thank you for that context. Thank you for that promise. And thank you for the hope to endure. Lord, it's in Christ's name that we pray now. Amen.